Well, I, on this Thanksgiving weekend, I wonder if you have a, a Thanksgiving that stands out as being particularly memorable for you. Maybe it was a long time ago. Or maybe it was the last time that you had a Thanksgiving celebration that wasn't affected by COVID restrictions and you were able to have it with your family or friends and neighbors. Or maybe the Thanksgiving you remember most isn't one that was particularly delightful, but more of a disaster. Maybe the turkey wasn't quite cooked right and you and your guests ended up with a bad case of food poisoning. One Thanksgiving that stands out for me is the first one I spent with Elaine's family. We were newly married and I was working in construction at the time. I didn't get any sick days. So I had arranged to have my wisdom teeth pulled out on the long weekend. You know, on the Friday, so I could recuperate over the long weekend. I know some of you think this is a bad idea. <laughs> it seemed like a good idea. You know, I wasn't going to waste any wages. Until we, you know, we sat down for this wonderful meal, and all I could do was smell it while everyone else was eating it. I finally decided to try and put some of the turkey and the mashed potatoes and vegetables and gravy into a blender so I could try and drink it. Yeah, bad idea all around. Kids, do not try this at home. Well, most of the Israelites in Moses' day had never been actually able to celebrate a Thanksgiving holiday or any other holy day. Time off was something they could only dream of. But then Moses and Aaron arrived out of nowhere, it seemed, showing and telling them how concerned God was about them and how he had sent them to rescue the people from the slavery and the hand of Pharaoh. Oh, that was the day hope was reborn. They were convinced that better days were just around the corner. And so they began making plans for the grand Thanksgiving celebration that God had invited them to out in the wilderness. And encouraged by such a wholehearted response by the people, Moses and Aaron made their way to Pharaoh's court to deliver God's message. Let's read that message. Exodus chapter 5. Exodus chapter 5. going to read verses 1 to 21. After Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, and afterward Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says Let my people go, so they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now, let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with a sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. 
That is why they are crying out, let us go sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they may keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says. I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you each day, just as, you, as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, Why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, make bricks. Your people are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work, and you will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, oh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting for, to meet them, and they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Wow. Moses, accompanied by his spokesman brother Aaron, deliver the Lord's message to Pharaoh with an air, I think, of confident boldness. After all, they have come as God's ambassadors with the full weight of the Lord's authority. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Moses and Aaron may well have thought that today would be deliverance day, or at least the beginning of it. They expected, I think, that Pharaoh would grant their request for a long overdue festival of praise and thanksgiving to their God. It was not to be. Pharaoh is blasphemously sarcastic in his response, refusing to acknowledge another God's claim to his people, Moses and Aaron's opening boldness crumples like a stack of cards. So they backed away from using the name Yahweh and fell back on terms more familiar to Pharaoh. Notice, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. They also emphasize both the limited nature of their requests. Now they say, it's a three-day journey into the wilderness. And they explain the extreme pressure they are under to carry out God's request. We're dead if we don't. Now, I don't think they expected Pharaoh to care about their personal well-being and need for some time off. But surely he didn't want to risk losing a sizable portion of his workforce or to plague or to sword. You know, surely three days of lost work was minimal compared to that danger. But Moses and Aaron had underestimated their opponent. For not only did the king of Egypt refuse to make any concessions... He decided to increase his demands with an amendment to the regular work order. Indeed, that same day, 
He gave orders to his Egyptian slave drivers and the Israelite foremen overseeing his workforce to no longer supply the people with the key ingredient they needed to make bricks. Order them to go and get their own straw and make sure not to reduce the daily quota. I don't know what it'd be like at your workplace, but perhaps it's, uh, you know, you get supplies delivered and it's like, no, now you have to go pick them up yourself and you have to still keep all of the uh, work that you're supposed to do. Moses was so taken aback at this unexpected turn that he becomes, if you notice, speechless in this war of words and he will only speak again at the end of the chapter when he is heard bitterly complaining to the Lord for having been responsible for this disaster. And Pharaoh's new work order made its way down the chain of command to the people where it is delivered, if you notice, with prophetic-like authority. The language, this is what Pharaoh says, stands in sharp contrast with the message delivered by Moses and Aaron with which they had introduced. This is what the Lord says. The contest for ultimate authority and ownership of the people has begun. As a commentator, Waldemar Jansen notes, in what follows we see not only the cruel mind of one ruthless ruler, but the deployment of a whole machinery of oppression, extending from Pharaoh through the Egyptian taskmasters and the Israelite supervisors to the people bearing the brunt. Literarily, that is as this story is told, the narrator continues to draw us into the story through a series of dialogues that begin taking place at various levels, moving up and down the chain of command. It began with, a, with an authoritative word from the Lord to Pharaoh, then from Pharaoh to his taskmasters, to the Israelite foreman, and down to the people. And it will work its way back up the chain of command to Pharaoh, to Moses and Aaron, who ultimately blame God for the mess. And you will notice that all the participants have their say along the way, except for one group, the people. Their silence at the very center of this story in verse 12 is deafening. You see, they have become too busy and oppressed even to have time and ability to speak. Instead of being able to hold a great Thanksgiving festival to the Lord, Moses and Aaron's plans have proved to be utterly disastrous for the people. And the verses that follow give us a, a verbal window into, a window into what life was like for them in Egypt. But there's a, an Egyptian mural from a tomb, if you can show that, a tomb chamber, dating from around this time period, just about 100 years before this, illustrating what the practice of, the practice of making bricks at that time, and, and prominent on that mural are slave drivers beating the slaves with a stick or whip. There are many of these, and these were featured on the walls of Pharaoh's temple. For the slaves, it looked and felt like the worst of times as Pharaoh exacted his brutal revenge. It is helpful to think about some of the worst of time moments in our lives to get a feel for what they must have been feeling at that time. There are many worst of time moments in the Bible, 
Personally, I remember also celebrating Thanksgiving 1995. We were, uh, Elaine was pregnant with our third child, and she was, we were saying around the Thanksgiving table how good she felt compared to, to the other ones, the other pregnancies that she had had, and we were just feeling really optimistic about this. Within two days, we were in emergency room, and... Uh, she almost died, and we thought our child died, was dying with her. How quickly things can turn to become the worst of life moments. Now, the pain for the people was very real. Those who bore the brunt of Pharaoh's revenge, and it was very real for the Israelite foremen, their own people who had been put over and who were responsible for them and for the daily quotas. They were in a no win situation. And so the Israelite foreman went and appealed to Pharaoh. But notice the nature and the details of their appeal in verses 15 to 16. They describe themselves as your servants. Not once, not twice, three times. That is, we're, we're on your side, Pharaoh. And they complain about beaten, being beaten for not getting their own people to keep their quotas. When the fault is with your own people. Who's their, who's their own people? You know, is it the slave drivers? Or is it the slaves, I suspect, and they acknowledge they're yours too. Everything is yours, Pharaoh. The slave drivers are now beating the Israelite foremen, overseeing the Israelite slaves, in order to make sure that they do everything in their power to make their quotas. And it would, of course, created internal division. And conflict, and it's clear that the, the quotas are impossible to meet. And yet Pharaoh is unrelenting. He is so hard-hearted that he doesn't care about the deadly and destructive effects of his new orders. These are disposable people. And the shape of oppression is always the same. Whether it be an abuser over his victim... Or a dictator over an entire people. Reaching all the way to death camps. That take place, have taken place and continue to in all kinds of countries. And yet Pharaoh, he deflects the blame. As oppressors always do. To the victims. To the victims. Lazy. That's what you are. Lazy. You're not trying hard enough. That's the problem. And yet he shows again how arrogant and hard-hearted he is. His true character is totally exposed in this story. He is so blinded by his pride, he cares for no one but himself, but the fact that his pride has kind of been wounded by, by Moses and Aaron's attempt to challenge him. But when they left Pharaoh, that is, the Israelite foreman, oh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting for them, and they said, you're responsible for this. May the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. You see, Pharaoh's strategy of getting even with Moses, oh, it is working so well. Moses' name and reputation, you know, they had been so high at the beginning of this chapter and they have plummeted in the rankings. And his support from his fellow Israelites, has dried up, completely, utterly collapsed. 
Notice how quickly they went from cheering for Moses as their God-appointed leader to cursing and condemning him. It's interesting, the, the word found in verse 20 When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron. It's actually an interesting, it's a very forceful word. It's earlier translated in verse 3 as strike. May God strike, God may strike us with plagues. In this case, the implication is they're meeting, you know, with Moses and Aaron. It's verbally forceful as they curse Moses and Aaron. And notice the irony. Who is responsible for their slavery? Moses and Aaron? Pharaoh, the head cheese, the big one, right? And who is ultimately responsible for making their oppression even worse? Well, they claim it's Moses and Aaron because they're the easiest targets. And on the deliverance side of the equation, not on the oppressor side, on the deliverance side of the equation, who had they cried out to for deliverance? To God, right? Remember, their, their cry reached the Lord. And hadn't they seen and believed the miraculous signs that Moses and Aaron had shown them and how he had told them that God had come to rescue them? And yet at the first sign of trouble, and granted, this is big, big trouble, right? And yet they call down God's judgments on the very one the, Lord, on the, very one the Lord had Chosen and prepared to deliver his people. Well, it's a good thing that Moses still has faith in God, right? Well, let's read if he does. Verses 22 and 23. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Hmm. No, Moses' faith is sinking in this storm too, isn't it? Really fast. As he accuses God of being a troublemaker instead of a deliverer. Trouble. That's all you've brought on our people, trouble. And actually, that word in Hebrew, trouble, is actually the word evil. Ra'ah, evil. You have not brought good, God. You have brought evil. That is quite a statement, isn't it? It seems the only one not surprised by Pharaoh's response is the Lord. And the only one who is confident that everything is going according to his plan is Pharaoh. Well, actually, Pharaoh is feeling that way, but there's another character in this drama who is often sure that things are going according to plan. The Lord. Everyone thinks Pharaoh has the upper hand in this contest. Everyone except the Lord. What Pharaoh has done has not set back the Lord's plans, but it has utterly solidified them. He has defied the real king. And if if Pharaoh thought that Moses and Aaron and the people had committed a grievous sin by defying him, Well, then he has shown what someone who defies the king deserves. Exactly what he has dealt out. God will not be mocked. What a person sows, he or she will reap. It is not the 
people who should be most worried but Pharaoh. But it takes the eyes of faith to see this and trust in God, doesn't it? Sometimes God is hidden from sight by the various circumstances of our lives. Uh, it's kind of like the, uh, you remember Where's Waldo? This little character on this big page of all this activity. Sometimes it's kind of like that and we, and we wonder, God, are, are you actually present and active on this page of my life? Or have you gone AWOL? South African Bishop Desmond Tutu said that during the darkest days of apartheid, he used to tell people that we had already won. And he even publicly invited his opponents to join, to come and join the winning side. And yet Tutu also admitted, of course, he said, there were times when you had to whistle in the dark to keep your morale up, and you wanted to whisper in God's ear, God, we know that you are in charge, but can't you make it a little more obvious? Well, I think that's kind of the question that rings with us at the end of this chapter. But there are some life lessons that I want to share that I think we can draw out of here. First life lesson is God doesn't promise immediate success. I think especially in our culture here in the West, we're really big on immediate. We have instant everything. Package doesn't arrive on time, and, and we're kind of, well, we're ticked off. God promises to be with us through all the ups and downs and to take ultimate, ultimate responsibility for the outcome. Everyone is given up by the end of round one with Pharaoh except God. It's reminded of uh, one of the verses in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. But that verse begins before Paul will say, here's a trustworthy saying. You know, if, if we do such and such, then God will do this. And, uh, and then he goes along and he said, if we are faithless, we expect the balance to be and he will be faithless. But Paul turns and he said, no, if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot disown himself. So we may fail, but God will not fail us. He is where our real hope and power to persist lie. And, and second, when challenging evil, expect resistance. And this can be challenging evil in any form. You know, Christ's ministry as Moses' ministry was regularly met with resistance. I don't know if there was a day in Jesus' ministry that didn't have resistance. Both from outside and then also from within. Remember even Peter, his closest disciple, you know, almost trips him up. I mean, and yet, unlike anyone else before him, John 3 verse 34 says that Jesus was given the spirit without limit. Totally the full measure of God's spirit. And yet that did not guarantee a swift, immediate, you know, end to the resistance and opposition. In many ways, Jesus experienced the greatest resistance and opposition of all with Satan attacking him when he was most vulnerable uh, in the wilderness, right? And yet Jesus learned to lean on God in these moments even more. 
in prayer, in his word. That's what we find in, in that temptation in the wilderness. Jesus is just digging even deeper into God's promises and into, the, and into what God is calling him to and leaning on those. And when the opposition was great, think of his worst moments. Think about when John the Baptist, his cousin, his great prophet who had appeared on the scene and yet he is snuffed out by Herod just at a stupid dinner party, you know, just because he wanted to save face and gets John beheaded. And, and Jesus, in that moment, it says in, in Matthew that he went out with his disciples. I think they went to pray. They needed to pray through that one, that discouragement, that resistance. But he also expected resistance is going to happen. And, and thirdly, don't doubt in the dark what God has shown you in the light. Oh, they had seen in the light what God had shown and told them that he was coming. And it was a big problem that Pharaoh refused to let the Israelites go, but that wasn't the biggest problem. God had told Moses and Aaron that Pharaoh wasn't going to fold like a house of cards. He said that back in 319. He's not going to listen. He's not going to cave in right away. You see, the biggest problem was not Pharaoh's resistance, but the people in Moses' doubt and despair despite what God had shown them clearly in the light. I remember an illustration uh, that I heard from uh, about Corrie ten Boom that she often used. Uh, Corrie was a, a Dutch Christian who helped to hide Jews during World War II. That is, until she and her family were caught and sent to the Ravensbrück uh, concentration camp. She survived that, her sister and father did not. But, but she wisely said as she would go and speak about those moments, she said, when a train goes through the tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the engineer. You sit still and trust the engineer. Are you willing to trust the Lord as the engineer of your life. Whatever it is that you may be going through at this time. He wants you to put your faith and trust in him. Maybe to renew that faith and trust. Maybe all you can pray is like the fellow in the gospels who said, Lord, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. He takes mustard seed faith and he can do great Lord, we love highlight moments in our life. We love it when everything goes according to our plan. But we also know that there are, there's opposition that happens maybe when we stand up for the truth, when we try to share our faith or we try to speak up for the values of your kingdom. And we get a backlash. A lot more than we anticipate. Maybe for some of us are worried about maybe a meal that we're going to have today that is with family, but it's a divided family. Or maybe we don't have a family to go to and we're in a situation we thought it would be a lot better by now, and it's not. Lord, help us as we go through a dark tunnel, whatever it may be, not to throw away the ticket, but to sit still and to trust the engineer to trust you. Because God, 
you are the one whose promises have never failed. Your faithfulness is so great from generation to generation. Encourage and strengthen our faith, Lord, to trust in you and to come alongside those maybe who are discouraged and doubting, Lord, to just be there so that they are not alone in the midst of this because we know, Lord, that you are with us through it all. Amen.